We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 1, uh, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 22. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we uh, uh, explore it further tonight. Heavenly Father, we are, we are grateful to be back. Uh, we are glad to be here. Uh, and we might have come for any number of reasons, but uh, more than anything, whether we acknowledge it or not, more than anything, we need to hear from you. So, Father, would you work tonight by your Holy Spirit? Would you be here with us? Would you cause our hearts to believe? Would you work, you know me, and you know my failings. Would you work in spite of them as I speak? And, Father, would you show us something of ourselves and our sin And more importantly, something of yourself and your grace and mercy to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, if you've been around RUF or uh, if you know me much at all, you know that I enjoy the occasional TV show. Um, Occasional. 
And one of my favorite genres is the sort of crime detective cop genre, really anything that falls in there. And uh, those are incredibly popular across the board uh, and some of the most watched shows on TV, right? Things like um, NCIS. NCIS has been on for 14 years. 14 years it's been on. It's got over 300 episodes. Uh, It's starting to make some all-time lists. Since 2008, it's been in the top five most watched TV shows every year. With over 20 million people watching it. And then, of course, uh, you have NCIS Los Angeles and New Orleans. And then, of course, you've got CSI, CSI Las Vegas, Miami, New York, and Cyber CSI. And all of those shows get millions of people to watch them. Now, why do I tell you that? Look, if if you've seen any of those shows more than a couple of times, what you'll notice is that there's a pattern to those shows. And really, almost all of the ones I listed follow pretty much the same pattern. Uh, Every every episode is is a unique story, but they still follow this sort of template or pattern. Uh, Most recently, I've been watching Criminal Minds. Any Criminal Minds watchers? Okay, a couple of you. Uh, It's basically like uh, CSINCIS Washington and they profile and hunt down serial killers. Um, so far, they've got 259 episodes, and here's the pattern. Okay? And again, it's pretty much the same as all these other ones. But this is, these things are going to happen. right? You can count on it. There's going to be a dead body that's found. Usually multiple bodies. Um, then there's going to be a future victim that gets abducted in the meanwhile. Uh, and then, where did it go? Uh, the FBI is going to be called in, or actually the, the uh, division of the FBI, the what BAU, and then they're going to gather clues, and then some clue that they gather, uh, they're going to gather some piece of evidence, they're going to deduce something from one piece of evidence, and so they're going to start to build a profile, and then they are going to um, be able to ID a suspect. Then they're going to hunt down and either arrest or abduct the suspect. And the trap victim is going to be saved. Every time. It follows the same pattern. It's a great story. It has lasting appeal, wide-ranging appeal. People love to hear it. All right, why do I tell you all that? Interestingly enough, maybe, uh, I tell you that because this semester we're going to study through the book of Exodus. And that actually is, a, I think, a pretty good way to think about what the book of Exodus is. It's the story of this amazing rescue of God rescuing his people Israel from Egypt. And really, uh, the theme of our semester is going to be that Exodus is the pattern of salvation. That the story that we see played out in Exodus of God rescuing his people... It's really the pattern or the template of how God rescues or saves people uh, throughout all time. Follows the same pattern, in a sense. And so every week we're going to look at this this pattern. We're going to see God's salvation played out. And as we do that, we're going to be able to look and understand, hopefully, a little bit more about what it looks like to be saved by God. What is salvation all about? What does it look like? 
in Exodus, God really invites us into the story, so to speak. Because even though the the characters are going to change and the settings are going to change, the substance of the story of Exodus is still being played out right now. God is still in the business of saving His people. And He offers you and I to be a part of that story. And so that's what we're going to do each week. We're going to look and see what Exodus shows us about the pattern of salvation. So tonight what I want us to see uh, very quickly is that, uh, that salvation begins in slavery. Salvation begins in slavery. And we're going to look at three things from our text tonight. First, we're going to look at the reality of slavery. Secondly, we'll see a glimpse of liberty, of freedom, in case you didn't know what liberty meant. Thirdly, we'll, uh, we'll get a hint of the liberator. So the reality of slavery, a glimpse of liberty, and then a hint of the liberator. All right, so first let's take a look at uh, the reality of slavery, which I think is sort of forefront in this text. And before we do that, I think it would be helpful to, to rehearse a little bit of background. Where are we in the, in, the, in the Bible, in the grand scope of things? So Exodus, the second book of the Bible, comes right after Genesis. Um, so what happens in Genesis? Basically, God obviously creates the world. Um, he creates mankind, and then things go really wrong, right? Um, sin enters the world. Man uh, is fallen. And then God begins this great plan of salvation to put everything back the way it ought to be, to, um, to, to put an end to sin, to, uh, to destroy the seed of the serpent, right? To destroy Satan and sin, And so he begins to do that um, by promising that he's going to send a hero. And he promises to send a hero to work through um, a guy named Abraham. He tells Abraham, I promise you that I will be your God and you'll be my people and from you is going to come uh, untold numbers of people. You're going to bless the world. And so Abraham has Isaac and Isaac has Jacob Jacob has Joseph and 11 other sons. And Joseph, uh, if you know the story, right, uh, Joseph gets sold off. Uh, his, he's sort of a, a little troublesome to his brothers. They sell him off into slavery in Egypt. And basically God ends up blessing Joseph in Egypt. And he ends up saving the world, to put it, uh, you know, to sum it up. Right, there's a big famine. God gives him wisdom uh, on how to save up food. And the whole world ends up coming to, uh, coming to Egypt uh, for food, including his family. And so Joseph, this Hebrew, uh, this Israelite, is a hero in Egypt. And so all his family comes and he lives, and they live in Egypt. And so that's where Exodus picks up. And so what we just read, we see that God blesses Israel, his people, right? Starts out with seven. There's just seventy people. Egypt is, is the you know the most powerful nation in the world, and there's just seventy of them, and they're they're heroes. But then that Pharaoh dies, and then there's there's a new guy in power eventually, and he doesn't really know Joseph and his family, and he doesn't really care about he and his family and what he did. And in the meanwhile, the the Hebrews have started multiplying. Uh, and, and more so, and now basically they look, you know, the Pharaoh looks up and he basically says, like, wait a minute, there's a whole lot of these people now. And if we're not careful, 
Uh, there could be enough of them that if they basically revolt, you know, we'd be in trouble. And so Pharaoh makes a plan. And his plan is basically, all right, while we can still handle them, let's make them our slaves. And so that's what he does. Uh, you can look at verse 13 and 14. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. All right, so that, that's it. That's the context of Exodus. Right? If, if Exodus is the great story of salvation, of someone being saved, then you have to be saved from something, right? And, and there it is. They're slaves in Egypt. That's their big problem. And I want you to take a second and to think about that. Because, you know, look, chances are you grew up in the church and you're like, yeah, no kidding, man. You labored on that for five minutes. We get it. They're slaves in Egypt. Knew that growing up. But I want you to think about, like, let's just take a second and walk through that. Think about what it looked like, what it felt like uh, to be in the midst of that. Every single day you do one thing. You wake up every day and you work. And you work hard. And it's Egypt, which even back then was hot. And you get yelled at and you get beaten. And you have to work harder and harder. You have nothing to look forward to. You don't get a day off. You're a slave. You don't take breaks. You don't have anything to look forward to. You go to bed at night, probably in pretty rough conditions, utterly exhausted, knowing that you're going to close your eyes and you're going to wake up, and guess what? You just get to do it all over again. And why are you doing it? You're doing it so that you can stay alive, so that you can keep your family alive, so that you can wake up the next day and do it all again. And there is no hope. Because everyone you know is enslaved with you. Even if somebody else comes in and takes over Egypt, you're just going to be their slaves. There's no UN, there's no, you know, there's no, you got nothing. There's no chance of you not ever being a slave. So Exodus is the story of how people get rescued from that. From utter hopelessness. Now look, you might be thinking like, oh, that's awesome, but what does that mean for me? Right? Um, because obviously we're not slaves in a foreign country. And that, that's certainly true, and that's, that's good. But even though you and I are not subject to another, you know, uh, nation, right? I know something about, I know at least one thing that's true about you and me. And it's this. You work for somebody or something. There is something or someone that you serve. Uh, We can say it like this. Everyone has some sort of master over them. This is a huge theme throughout the Bible. The Bible regularly talks about mankind and says you either serve God and he's your master, or you serve something else. 
And if you serve something other than God, you are a slave to that thing or that person or that idea. And it makes you work ruthlessly for it. Uh, John, in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to some uh, Jews that have been listening to him speak, and they have this conversation with him. Uh, verse, this is John 8, 31 through 34. You get that Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. That's right. Jesus himself says it. You work for somebody. And if you commit sin, then sin owns you. You can look at Romans 6, Titus 3, find similar uh, truths in Scripture. All right, so what does that mean for me and you? Let's apply this. Look, what is it that you're working for? Because maybe you still don't believe me. Um, and so let's, let's think about some examples. Um, this is certainly a question for non-Christians, but it's a question for, question for Christians as well. Who do you work for? Um, right. So how do you find out who or what that is? I want you to think about the things that you can't stop. What are the things that you cannot stop doing? Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's social media, right? You have to check, uh, you know, how many likes you got, how many retweets you got, how many whatevers you got. Um, you have to, uh, you know, check up on everybody else's also to make sure that you like the right number of things and uh, so that, you know, they reciprocate and you kind of stay in the game and you, you're always doing it and you can't stop. And it used to be fun, but now if you're at all honest... Uh, you, you very well might think it's not fun at all. And it's really like, I kind of hate it, but I do it, and I can't stop. It very well might be, uh, yeah, you can't stop, because if you do, people will wonder, you know, what's, uh, basically, like, what's wrong with you, or why, why have you not liked me back, and, and, and you know, you're, you're afraid of what would happen. Maybe they're not going to like you anymore. And so maybe, maybe you're, you're serving the master of acceptance. Or maybe it's your schoolwork. After all, when, when do you stop schoolwork? Right? You, you, you have to pull an all-nighter. Um, and look, I get it. You might say, like, well, look, that's, you know, we talk a lot about calling and vocation at RUF, right? So I'm called to be a student, right? It's my job. And that's great. And it is. But do you ever take a day off? Do you know who works seven days a week? Slaves. That's who works seven days a week. Maybe you're serving the slave master of, uh, of self-importance or self-worth. Um, and it's all through um, uh, your parents' approval. And that, that frames up your whole life. You want your parents to uh, approve of you and know that you've done a good job and be proud of you. And that drives everything you do and you can't stop. Maybe you're just now coming off of rush and the thought of, of now that you got into uh, the, the fraternity or sorority and maybe some of that's still going on, I don't know. Um, the thought now that you've gotten in, 
Now I've got to keep up that persona of the like super smiley, happy, energetic, like really cool, really fun person is just terrifying to you and you can't stop. Maybe it's because it owns you. The slave master of other people's opinion. Maybe it's having to, um, maybe you can't stop saying yes to people. Right? When they ask you to do something and you're, yep, I'll do it. I can always do it. Right? Look, we could go on and on. But you serve something. So do I. And look, maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's what you need to talk to uh, Olivia or I about. We'd love to help you think through that. What is it you serve and why you can't stop? We'd love to do that. But, but, but you're, if you find yourself in that position, right? You're, I want you to recognize that you're a slave. And there seems to be no hope. You're stuck. But I want to move on to our second point. And I want you to get a glimpse of freedom, a glimpse of liberty. Right? This opening chapter of Exodus, this like great salvation story, is pretty dark. But there's actually a little bit of hope here, and we see it in these midwives. But the midwives give us a little glimpse of what real freedom looks like. So even though uh, Egypt has enslaved the Hebrews and they're making them work ruthlessly, they're still growing in number. So this plan of enslavement hasn't worked, so Pharaoh cooks up this, uh, another plan, and he comes to the midwives, um, who seem to be Hebrew women, right? They're, these are Israelites, and he says, um, he basically says, look, all right, uh, when you go in and Hebrew woman's delivering, if it's a boy, you're going to kill it. If it's a girl, it's fine, she can live. Right? If you eliminate a generation of males, then an uprising is much less likely. But look at verse 17. It says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Right, think about that. These, these are Hebrew women. And the king of Egypt comes to them and says, This is what you're going to do. And they basically look and say, No. We're not going to do that. We're not going to... We're not going to obey Pharaoh, right? Their lives are on the line. This is certainly, right, this is a life and death situation sort of all the way around. And so even, I want you to see that even while they are slaves, I mean, they're still slaves, right? They're not completely under the control of Pharaoh. Because they fear God. They feared God more, in a sense, now look, when the Bible talks about fearing God, it doesn't mean being terrified of Him um, because of what He might do to you. Right? It's not this, um, you know, like in the movie, the movie TV show where like the bad guy, uh, you know, the mobster gets arrested or captured by, you know, somebody else, and they're trying to get information out of him, and they're threatening him with torture, and he basically says, look, you can do whatever you want to me. And I'm, I'm not going to talk, but you can do whatever you want to me. Because I'm way more scared of what my boss would do, right? Because he's way scarier than you are. He has no rules, right? This is, it, this is not that. This is not these Hebrew midwives looking and saying like, yeah, Pharaoh, like you're scary and everything, but, but God is truly terrifying. It's not the least scary option. When the Bible talks about fearing God, what it means, what it talks about is, is this deep sense of reverence. 
It's understanding the absolute awesomeness of God. Basically, these Hebrew, uh, these, uh, these midwives look and they think, yeah, you're big, Pharaoh, you, you have a lot of power, but God is way bigger. He's infinitely bigger. And they're going to serve him. And so what I want you to see is that they're actually, because of that, they're actually free to do or not do what they don't want to do. There's this demand on them, right? Their slave master says, you will do this. And they say, actually, we're free to not do that. And that's a beautiful thing. And interestingly enough, I didn't pick, I didn't pick up on this uh, until studying this passage. If you, notice, uh, if you notice in the passage, who in the passage is afraid? It's actually the Egyptians and the Pharaoh. Isn't that incredible? Verse 13, the Egyptians are in dread of the people of Israel. The big, powerful Pharaoh, he, he's, he's the most powerful man in the world, and yet he's afraid of losing his kingdom because of these two women. It's amazing. So what does that mean for me and you? Look, very simply this, wouldn't it be great to live like that? Wouldn't it be great to live a life of that kind of freedom? Where you're free to look at demands that are placed on you that are, that are inappropriate and say no. To live a life free from the tyranny of other people's opinion. To know that what other people think about you, you you're free from that. It doesn't own you. To live a life where you're free to say yes to something that you really want to do that, that would be good, like to pursue a relationship, to get to know somebody better, um, to, to be vulnerable, to open yourself up to people, and to not be afraid of the negative consequences. To be free. To live a life where you feel free to say no to things that inappropriately demand your time. That thing that would be great on your resume and your drive for acceptance or you know, control or whatever it is, right? A good life, comfort comes and it says, you have to do this to put this on your resume. Wouldn't it be great to have the freedom to say, no, I don't. I don't have to do that, actually. I'm free to not. To not be afraid of what other people think. Right? We get this little hint here that freedom comes from fearing and serving God. Because God loves to bless and bring life. That's who God is. It's what he does. Thirdly and finally, and very quickly, I want you to see that we get a hint of the liberator here in this passage. So the midwives give us this glimpse of true freedom, right? What it would look like to, to live as a, as a really free person because you serve God. But the midwives also give us a hint of the, uh, of the one who's going to liberate us. Um, in this story, right, at least in chapter 1, the hero, the hero of chapter 1 are these two women. I want you to think about how awesome that is. Right, think about it this way. Right, in this corner, you've got the most powerful man of the most powerful nation in the whole world. He has basically every human resource imaginable at his disposal. 
verses, two slave women who are... Pro- all right, so number one, you're, you're a slave. Number two, you're a woman, which, you know, in this day, um, is women did not have the value, were generally not valued the way they should be. And generally, your, most of your value was tied up in your childbearing... And from what we understand, uh, folks that were midwives were, were probably barren. That was their... So you've got two, these two slave women that, from the world's perspective, have no worth. Right? They, prob- they probably were viewed as useless um, and, and maybe even cursed by God. If those are your, right, if, if that's who's going to battle here, this is a no-brainer. But look what God does. God uses the, the most unlikely people in the entire scenario to be the hero. Unlikely hero. That's the way that God brings salvation. We're going to see that a lot. God, I want to say it this way, God does things backwards from the way that we we do them. But it's probably the other way around, right? It's not that God does things backwards. God does things the right way. We tend to do things backwards. But God uses these Hebrew women, these unlikely women to save. And they seem to to thwart Pharaoh's plan, but the last verse, which you don't have on your sheet, tells us that it wasn't enough. Verse 22 says that Pharaoh turns to everyone in Egypt And he gives a new edict to kill every boy that's born to the Jews by throwing them in the Nile. So just when it seems like, yay, midwives, right? Like, win one for the little guy. Pharaoh just says, all right, forget you two. I'm going to tell everybody else, kill all the Hebrew boys. Throw them in the river. And look, as hopeless and dark as the story ends... There's a little hint. There's a little hint of the Savior. Because hundreds and hundreds of years later, there's going to be another poor, childless Hebrew woman named Mary that God's going to work through. And He's going to give her a son. And that son is going to be named Jesus. And Jesus is going to be born into a poor family. He's going to be born in a barn. And there's going to be another king named Herod who's afraid of losing his kingdom. And so he issues a very similar edict that all the boys, two years and under in the area, are going to die. But Jesus is going to escape and he's going to be be taken by his family to where? Egypt. And he's going to come out of Egypt and he's going to grow up and he's going to fear God perfectly and yet he's going to live a life of poverty, a life of suffering. His friends are all going to leave him. His family's going to think he's crazy. And it's going to culminate in a ridiculous mock trial And then he's going to die in a horrific way.
And so he's the greatest and yet most unlikely hero ever. Why is he such a great hero? I just want to end with this thought. How can he look like that and yet be the great hero? And here's how. I want to go back to John 8. This is right after uh, where we left off earlier. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You remember that? The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see what Jesus is saying? You're a slave to sin. Unless I set you free. And how does he do that? Jesus is the true son, right? He takes the place of his people and he becomes the slave. Right? What does Romans 6.23 say? I bet most of you, if not all of you, could say it. The wages of sin is death, right? If, you're a, if you work, if you work for sin, here's what you get paid. It's death. And for people like me and you that work at sin and earn a bunch of death, Jesus comes as the real hero and he says, I will take your place. I will take what you've earned up for yourself. I will take your shame. I will take your disgrace. I will take your punishment. I will take the wrath of God so that he can give us his status as the righteous one. As the one, as the son, so that we can be free. Right? Jesus offers you a freedom that truly is free to you. And it costs him dearly. But he did it because he loves you. And that's, that's an invitation to you tonight. And I want to make one more. I want to invite you to come back. Because that's what we're going to do all semester. We're going we're gonna to explore how, how the Bible how, in Exodus shows you that there is good news for people like me and you. And I hope you take it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you would come, Jesus, and you would save. You would take on our sin and our shame so that we might be free. Lord Jesus, please make us free. I pray that that would be true of every single person in this room. And if it's not, would you please make it so? We ask it in your name. Amen.